Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church this morning as we continue our series in the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We've taken a few weeks break from our methodical, systematic walking through the letter of 2 Peter, sort of verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, to talk to you about the purpose of the church, the main purpose of the church, which is to go and make disciples. So we've taken a couple of weeks to talk about that. This is the way that we sort of crafted the question, why do we gather? And we said, we gather to go and make disciples. We looked at Matthew 28. And then last week we talked about, well, how do we go? How do we make disciples? Does the Bible speak to a method? Does it speak to a message that we take with us as we go? And we say, yes, it does. The message is the gospel. And the method is that we incarnate that gospel. In other words, we live that gospel together as a church. as part of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing this morning. So today we re-engage our um, series in 2 Peter, where we left off back on July 31st. And actually, that's going to be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. So please open your Bible to that passage. And the title of our message this morning is, Pay Attention. Pay Attention. Now, it's hard to pay attention. And for those of you who know me, it's particularly hard for me to pay attention. Because I could be in a deep conversation with you. And, and whether it's an insect that flies by my head or a thought that flies through my head, you could lose me there briefly, right? I know none of you are like that. No, most of us are like that. It, it, it's tough to pay attention. It's tough to pay attention. If I was looking at my report cards from when I was in elementary school, so my dear mother who's back here, 92 years old, kept, has kept my report cards. And back then at Biscayne Gardens Elementary School in the 60s, they actually had paper report cards. And so I was looking at them. And on the back of my report cards, <clears throat> there's a section on comments. And over and over was the same comment. Albert is a good student, but he lacks self-control. You guys say amen. I'm trying to grow in that. But isn't it hard today in particular to pay attention? We seem to be a culture that lacks self-control, and particularly in South Florida. We've got constantly around us things to distract us and particularly in the digital age there's always a buzzing a beeping a boinking a bonging whatever sound your your phone makes when you get a tweet a snapchat a facebook message who knows what else there is okay and it's just easy to be distracted isn't it it's hard to really focus even in a conversation at a restaurant, families, you'll see families gathered around the table and they're all looking at their phone or you're about to make a point and ding, wait, I'll be right back. And it's like, you know, and we're just, it's hard to pay attention. But this morning, God is telling us to pay attention. This morning, through the Apostle Peter, God is saying very clearly, pay attention, church. Now the question is, pay attention to what? Well, Peter answers that question in our text. In 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. So let's read the text, church. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Are you there? Are you paying attention? Pay attention, man. Get the Bible out. Read it. 
Turn off the phones. Well, don't turn off your phones because your Bible's on your phone, but turn off whatever it is that your phone's going to do to make you not read the Bible. And let's pay attention, shall we? Here we go. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, did you catch it? What is it to which we are to pay attention? Well, here's a hint. It's in verse 19. Look at it again with me. See it? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We are to pay attention to the prophetic word. Okay, Al, what's the prophetic word? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. I hope to prove that to you in this sermon this morning. It's the word of God. So here's the bottom line. Peter is writing at the end of his life, maybe 65, 66 AD. He's the pastor of the church in Rome. He knows that he's going to die soon. He doesn't know exactly when, but remember Jesus prophesied to Peter that Peter would die pretty much the same way Jesus did by crucifixion. And now it's 30 some years later and Peter knows that he's going to die and he knows the pressure is ginning up in the Roman empire and more and more of the government is opposed to the Christians. Sound familiar? And things are getting a little hotter. And it's maybe not yet out-and-out persecution like it will come in the 70s and 80s, but it's starting. And as a matter of fact, Peter's right. Shortly after he penned 2 Peter, he was crucified. As, As tradition would hold it, upside down, outside of Rome. So he's thinking to himself, I've got to give the church something solid, something that it can be built on. So the The letter of 2 Peter is all about the true knowledge of God. So he's saying, in fact, this whole letter has been like thundering down all the way to verse 19. And he's basically saying to them, you would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. And what he's thinking about is the Bible. Now, back then, the Bible was the Old Testament because Peter was busy writing the New Testament, along with Paul and Mark and and all the rest of the authors, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, this Old Testament word of God, that God is giving us the ability to interpret as apostles, and we're writing about it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to this word, because soon I won't be with you. Soon I won't be with you. This word is a lamp 
shining in a dark place. And this image you see up on the screen really carries with it the the main point of our text this morning. Pay attention to God's word as a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention to God's word as a lamp shining in a dark place. Church, let me tell you something. This Bible that you hold in your hands, whether you're reading it in Spanish or in Portuguese or in English or in French, what I love about South Florida. There could be folks reading it in any one of those languages because of where they grew up or their parents grew up. This word, this Bible that you have in your hands has come down to us over the last 3,500 years. Genesis was written in approximately 1500 BC by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter was written somewhere around 65, 66 uh, AD. Have you ever asked yourself, can I trust it? How do I know this is the word of God? How do I know it's accurate? Well, let me tell you, it is. I don't have time to go into a bunch of detail, but I have two resources for you. If you, if you want to borrow them from me, you can. Just leave me your firstborn child or a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, <clears throat> one is very much academic by F.F. F. Bruce. The New Testament documents, are they reliable? And the other one is more modern by Kevin DeYoung, taking God at his word. And and I can give you even more uh, documents. But bottom line is this. If you believe anything on earth today, if you have studied anything of antiquity, anything you've read from Plato to Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey to whatever documents you might be having, if you've studied them and if you've believed them, if you know anything, here's what I have to tell you. There is no book of antiquity that's better documented than the Bible. There's no book of antiquity that has more manuscripts that are closer to the original manuscripts than the Bible. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, a lot of them partial manuscripts. There there are manuscripts we have, especially of the New Testament, that are within a hundred years of the original autographs. No book of antiquity that you would trust and believe that historians would believe have that kind of attestation, that kind of proof. Scholars of textual criticism, that is the the, the science of trying to understand how accurate a text is, will tell you, Christian and non-Christian, this Bible is accurate to about 98.5% to the original manuscripts. And that 1.5%, all it is is like grammar, little grammatical like periods and question marks and, and that kind of thing. And none of it, none of it changes the basic tenets of scripture. This book is the accurate word of God. The question is, will this book be the light and the lamp for you? See, see this lamp that is shining in darkness, are you walking in the light or are you walking in some darkness? Now listen, if you're a Christian, obviously you're walking in the light. God has saved you. You have been given light. You were blind. You were in darkness. These are metaphors of the Bible. And now you can see you're in the light. But walking in the light, what Peter is saying to the church today, he's saying walking in the light is walking underneath the authority of this book. Is the Bible that which lights your way? Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Like this lamp here, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is 
That's, I believe that's what God is asking and really compelling us to consider this morning. Is the Bible this light for you? Is it the authority for you? Is it what rules your life? There's fancy ways of saying that. Is it what constrains your conscience? That's a fancy way of telling you, is it, is the Bible what tells you how to live the decisions you make, what to do? Or is it, are they the cultural norms? Your own opinion. You see, that's what's happening here in this second letter to Peter. A bunch of false teachers are saying that the apostles and Peter have been making up myths and fables about the return of Jesus Christ as the judge of all the universe. And and they're saying, these guys are making things up as they go. And Peter is saying, look at it in verse 16, no, we're not making those things up, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. No, no, we're not making it up as we go. You're making it up as as you go. We are basing our teaching that Christ will return again as the judge of all the world on the word of God. It is the lamp that lights our way and our feet. It is the lamp, is it the lamp in your life? See, the truth is that Jesus came the first time. The truth is that his first coming anticipates his second coming. And the truth is that when he comes a second time, he's going to come as the judge of the living and the dead. But that is a truth that the false teachers didn't want to hear because the false teachers were living lives that were against God's will. They were living licentious, sensual given to the flesh lives. And they were falsely teaching other Christians to live that way. And since they were not coming under the authority of God's word, they did not want to even think about the return of Christ. So they denied it. Later on in this book, we're going to read that they basically said, hey, you said that Jesus is coming back. Where is he? Everything continues as it has from the beginning, where's the promise of his coming? <laughs> kind of like with the storm, right? Like I got up this morning, and said, you know, you watch the news and you think, you know, life's going to end as we know it. Go out and buy all the water and, and things you can, you know, gas up your car, your neighbor's car, a neighbor's, just a, a, an unknown person's car. Just get as much gas as you can, you know, because everything's going to end. And I woke up this morning, I went, huh, where is it? Everything is as it was. It is sunny. It is sunny. And so they were saying the same thing. Jesus is coming back. Everything is as it was. The reason they were saying that is because they were living lives against God's word. They didn't want Jesus to come back. So here's the application for you and for me. It is this. Are you living as Jesus and his word, the authority in your life is his word your authority or has your lifestyle influenced how you look at God's word so that like the false teachers you want to kind of reinterpret God's word because you know that you're not living according to God's word and when you're breaking the law the last one you want to see are the authorities if you just run a red light The worst feeling in the world is as you run the red light, not on purpose, of course, because none of you would do that, not because you're late, you're in a hurry, but maybe you just got distracted, right? Not because you were speeding. But the moment you run through the red light, what's the last thing you want to see? 
You don't want to see facing you, making a left-hand turn, waiting for you since you blew the light, a police officer, do you? Because you're like, "Uh uh-oh, and then you look in the rearview mirror, and there he goes, right behind you. So if you're breaking God's law, the last thing you want to believe is that Jesus is coming back as the judge of all the universe. So my question to you is this. Are you living as the word of God your authority, or are you living as your own self and your own thoughts and your own opinions as your authority? And I just felt like that really is like a a sermon within a sermon for you this morning. In a moment, we're going to get into Peter's twofold proof that Jesus is returning. That's a very important proof for you and me because there were suffering Christians who were being told in 1 Peter, listen, the suffering now anticipates the glory to come. So therefore, in 2 Peter, Peter has to address the false teachers saying that, hey, there is no glory to come because those Christians are saying, wait a second, Peter told me in 1 Peter that I endure the suffering now because there's glory coming. And now these false teachers are saying, there's no glory coming. This is all there is. So Peter has to oppose that. And we're going to see his specific arguments in a moment. But before we get there, I just want to ask you, is this word your authority? Or is your own opinion your authority? And if it's your own opinion that's your authority, has your opinion been colored by the sins of your life? Because if you're living with someone and having sex outside of marriage, and in your mind it's okay because you love them, then that's going to color how you interpret 1 Corinthians 7 or Ephesians 4 when it talks about no sexual immorality. You're going to be tempted to redefine it a little bit. See where I'm going with that? It may not be as stark for you. And I don't know everybody in this room. And if that is you, I don't know you, and I'm not speaking to you, and the Holy Spirit is, then great. But I'm not. But, But there are so many little things that we do that we're doing it, and if the Bible says do something differently, we're tempted to reinterpret it, aren't we? That's just a question for you. Now, let's get to Peter's twofold argument proving that Jesus is returning. Are you paying attention? Does God have your attention? Point one. Christ's first coming anticipates his second coming. To make this point, Peter uses the transfiguration. The transfiguration is recorded in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And basically what the transfiguration is, that Jesus in Galilee uh, called Peter, James, and John with him to go up to a mountain. And when he got to that mountain, Moses and Elijah, Elijah showed up And then they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son at whom I am well pleased. Now that happened 30 years earlier, but Peter refers to it right here as if it happened yesterday. Look at verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him in the holy mountain. Now you say, wait a second, Peter, that happened 30 years ago. How can you remember that? Would you forget it if 30 years earlier you saw Moses and Elijah show up next to Jesus on a mountain? Jesus is transfigured, he's glowing, and then suddenly you hear a voice, and I can only imagine it just scared them to no end, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I think you'd remember that. Now, what's interesting is, why does Peter 
pull that experience out, eyewitness account, to prove that Jesus is coming back. I believe he does it because Peter is saying the majesty and glory of God appeared upon Jesus Christ, verifying that he is God and signaling the coming of the kingdom. And as the kingdom came when Christ, then it will come and be consummated in his second coming. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says it this way, quote on the screen, the transfiguration anticipates the coming, the second coming, for it unveils the glory that will belong to Jesus at his coming. The first coming anticipates the second coming. If you don't believe that the second coming is for reals, if you don't believe that there is glory on the other side of suffering, then when you're suffering and we all suffer, you're going to be tempted to give up. See, that's what that was happening in the first century with these false teachers who were saying, listen, eat, drink, and be merry because there's nothing after this life. And you know what? Functionally, that can be how you and I live sometimes. There's no consequences to me doing whatever I want now. That would be like saying, those of you who just started school, you know what? There's no final exam. Do whatever you want. You don't have to study. You want to go party? You don't even have to go to class. It's a lie. And that lie is going to come back to bite you at the end of the semester. Because you're going to walk in and go, wait, wait, these people are telling me there's no final exam. Oh, there's a final exam. But I've lived as if there isn't one. See? And so, and so that's, that's the truth that Peter is trying to address. That's the truth I need today. Because we're going to suffer on this earth. But there's a glory to come. Jesus promises to share that glory with you and me. So if you deny a second coming... You're not going to be living for that. And we need to be. So point one, the transfiguration, the first coming of Christ anticipates his second coming. Point number two, God's word assures us of Christ's second coming. God's word assures us of Christ's second coming. You say, hey, Al, you've been talking about the prophetic word being the same as the word of God. I've been looking at this text, and I'm trying to figure out two things. Number one, why is there water at your feet? And number two, where in the world do you see the word of God? This anticipates the prophetic word preparing us for baptism later on. So it's it's like, where do you see the word of God here? That's a great question, church. I'll tell you where I see it. I see it in verse 17. See if you can find it with me. For when he received honor and glory, this is Peter describing what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. In your Bibles, do you see a quotation mark right before this? All right, alert. Okay, alert. This is probably an Old Testament quote. Which it is. This is my beloved son, comma, with whom I am well pleased. And quotation mark. There's your word of God. There's your word of God. What that is, what Peter is doing there, is he's taking two Old Testament pictures of God coming to judge and rule the world. He's putting them together. And Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is saying, this is that. The first one is in Psalm 2-7. And the second one is in Isaiah 42.1. So up on the screen, Psalm 2.7. 
The psalmist, around 1000 BC, writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah, some 300 years later, wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice in the nations. The servant in whom he delights is the son. And so Peter, by the Holy Spirit, brings those two together and says, this is what the voice said. But my beloved son in whom I delight. And and, and so this is the word of prophecy. This is the word of God. And Peter says that Jesus fulfills that. But then your question to me is, but Al, where does it say that he's coming back to judge? Well, let's go back to Psalm 2 on the screen. Psalm 2, 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, he's speaking to the sun, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What Peter is saying is those false teachers are lying. We're not the ones making up myths. These aren't cleverly devised myths. Verse 16. No, no, no. This is the word of God. This is what God said was going to happen. And Jesus is that one. And his first coming anticipates his second coming. And at his second coming, he's come to dash and rule and with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And he's coming with his gaze to judge the world. Dear Christian, here's your confidence. In Christ, that judgment falls on Jesus. When that day comes, you'll be able to stand on that day because you're going to say, I'm in Christ. That's really good news. I mean, the bad news needs to precede the good news, doesn't it? The bad news is he's, he is. He's coming as a judge. The exam is coming and all of us fail the exam. But the good news is Jesus passed the exam and Jesus is the one in whom we hide and Jesus is the one in whom we trust so that on that day, my confidence is, Oh, Jesus, that'll be a great day for you, Christian. And you need to live today as if that day were real. You need to live today according to God's word, not your opinion. Because if you live by your opinion, you would fail that day. You can't live by your own self-righteous, self-justifying ways. You will fail. You will be judged. It will be a horrible day. But you don't. You live by the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, put away your judgments and your opinions and, and hold on to the word of God. Love the word of God. Apply the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Go to community group and talk about the word of God. Guys, we talked about this last Wednesday, man. Let us make every effort to really just let the word pour over me. Because it's that word that tells me I'm saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, for God's glory alone. So let me live that way, Christian. But oh, non-Christian, with as much respect as I can give, and I do mean this. The Bible says that that will be a terrible day for you. Because that exam is coming, and no one can pass it. Only Jesus passed it. And I I beg you, listen, it's coming. Whatever the world tells you that it's not coming, whatever the world might say to you, I'm telling you, it's coming. And the only way that you're going to endure that day of judgment, the only way you're going to endure the, the righteous gaze of the judge of all the universe is by repenting and believing today. Put aside your opinions of what God is and isn't. Put aside your ways of relating to God Humble yourself, repent and believe. And that day will be a great day for you.
That day will be a great day for you. The very prophecy that tells us that, the very prophecy that preaches that to us is the word of God. And in conclusion, that word is sure. That's what verses 19, 20, and 21 are all about. That word is sure. That word is the word to which we pay attention. That word is the lamp shining in a dark place. That word is the word that gives me light. It gives me light. But listen, when Jesus, who is the light, comes, I no longer need the light. I've got the lamp on because it's dark. But the day that when day comes, I turn the lamp. I don't need the lamp anymore. And that's what he means at the end of verse 19. Until the day dawns. That's speaking of the second coming of Christ. And the morning star, referring to Christ, rises in your heart. Well, all that means is, I think, is that on that day, the morning star rising in our heart means that we're just going to rejoice with the joy inexpressible when finally we've been laboring all night with the light on and it's late and we're tired and we're doing our, our exams and we're studying and I'm working and you may be working right now and it's difficult. The light's on. There's darknesses. I've got the light in the dark place, but sometimes the darkness can discourage me and depress press me and I'm just working and I'm saying, God, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And then all of a sudden I'm in my room and all of a sudden it's like the light goes, bam. And on that day, there's no more sin. Alpino's not wrestling with the things that Alpino wrestles with and whatever you wrestle with and those things that grieve us and hurt others. There's no more earthquakes. There's no more terrorist attacks. There's no more banking failures. There's no more lying and stealing and cheating. There's no more adultery. There's no more rape. There's no more murder. There's no more children that are left abandoned on the trash heap of life. But there's joy inexpressible. On that day, we won't need this word anymore because the word, we're in his presence. That's what that means. Oh, church, live for that day. Live for that, live today in light of that day. This word is true. This word is not the fabrication of human beings. Verse 20 simply states that Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, properly interprets the Bible. And verse 21 simply states the inspiration of the word of God, that God, working with human authors, he doesn't change their personality, but both human beings and God are fully involved in the process of inspiration. The personality and gifts of the human authors were not squelched or suppressed. Both God and human beings contributed to the prophetic word. Ultimately, however, and most Most significantly, these human words are God's words. So God uses Peter. God uses David. God uses Daniel. But it is God's word. That's why we study the personality. That's why we study the the literary type. That's why we study when we say, what's Peter saying here? What kind of Greek is he using? Uh, What is that Hebrew phrase that Moses uses? Why does David use this? We know that it's God's word and God's the one that is the primary mover, but he uses the personalities, the context, the life experiences, the audiences to whom they are preaching and writing of the authors. But it's God's word, church. Therefore, quoting from Schreiner again, evangelical theology rightly infers that this, the scriptures, this are authoritative, infallible, and inerrant for God's words must be true. That's why we spend the time preaching. That's why I get all worked up. 
why Corey gets all worked up. That's why we love to preach the word, because it's God's word, and it's true. Church, as we transition into receiving new members, I pray that we would live today in light of that day because of God's word. Church, I pray that God's word would be a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our way. I pray that God's word would give us hope. It is God's word that we're obeying. It's God's word that those who are being baptized are obeying. It's God's word that we're trying to apply as we join the church. It is God's word. Church, let us resist the temptation to make it up as we go, jettisoning our man-made opinions for God's word. Let us pay attention to God's word, dear friends. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the preaching of your word this morning. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a fearful and wonderful thing to do. What man is, is, is able to declare your word and preach it and, and give explanation to your word to your people? None of us. So we do it with a limp. We, we, we do it imperfectly. We do it haltingly. We do it with all kinds of distractions all over the place. But Father, we do it in obedience to you. That it would encourage your people. Oh, encourage your people this morning. That it would lift up souls and spirits that are down. That it would give hope and vision. Lord, to the lost, your elect that are sitting right here, right now, fast bound in darkness, may it give them that light and may you by your spirit bring to life their dead souls and they'd be saved through the power of the gospel preached in your word. May marriages be, be, be set right. May broken hearts be healed. May minds that are tormented be given peace through the word of God. And we'll stay humbly underneath it, Lord. We humble ourselves under your word and say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Your opinion, Lord. Just show us. Help us understand it by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.